You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning with folded hands acknowledging that it's not our works that does any of this. We're just made out of clay. And we're about to keep the Sabbath soon after sundown tonight when we acknowledge that this whole week and our whole life, we take a rest from our labors to depend on your labors and your works. And so this morning, once again, we open your word, we consider history, and we ask from the light from above that we can see through eyes, your eyes, the things that are happening in this world and the mission and the message that you have called us to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've been looking at this week at some interesting material as we consider some of the things happening, as we uh, open the scriptures to challenge ourselves, and as we review history. And session number one was titled, Disarming Prejudice. And we considered the words of Jesus when he's talking about being reviled and persecuted which is always a two-step process. First, there's words against a target audience, and then there's uh, actions of violence against them. There's reviling, and then there's persecuting. And when Jesus said that, he followed up by saying, to be the salt, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing. And so we can't do anything in the field of religious liberty unless we have influence, unless we get out and mingle. And we can't have influence unless we have credibility. And that's why we uh, put ourselves present and um, represent ourselves in various uh, meetings and forums and things like that to protect and to speak for religious liberty for ourselves and for others. And number two is uh, titled Crown of Thorns. And we considered the hostile or highly uh, hyper-partisan political environment that Jesus did ministry under when he put both globalist and nationalists on his discipleship team. And as we looked at that, we also saw the, the disastrous results in the fourth century when the church began to mix politics and theology during the time of Constantine. And number three, we looked at the American experiment and we did a good solid Bible study on why we believe in religious freedom and the separation of church and state, and why that's the separation of church and state is not only a good choice uh, legally or philosophically, but also morally and biblically. And we considered the history of how America arrived at that model through some twists and turns um, to honor a separation of church and state and religious freedom. Yesterday, we looked at when churches take control, and we especially considered the prophetic message from Revelation 13, and seeing that though there will be many back and forths leading up to the final blow, though there's going to be a, a king of the south and a king of the north, and a, a left and a right, that the final tyranny is going to be a religious tyranny in the sense that when we've seen governments controlling churches before, there's going to be a revival of the Dark Ages model where the church controls the government. 
And um, this dominionism thought in Christianity, uh, as you heard from some of the quotes yesterday, and maybe you've been a little bit aware, maybe you got a little more context, this kind of language, this kind of rhetoric, this kind of tone is getting uh, stronger and stronger. We end today with the message titled, Eyes on Adventism. And in this last message, I'd like to circle back to some of the themes that we touched on in the first message. How can we make any difference in the area of religious liberty unless we have influence? And how can we have influence unless we have credibility? There are many reasons that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a movement of destiny. We preach a sacred message that is profoundly consequential. There's no other church that embraces all the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We have a message. We have a mandate. The message must go to the world. It's our mission. Nobody else is preaching it. And to the people who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, God has given a message of global significance, which we discover as we study the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we will study more this morning. And if that's true, that there, God has a message of global significance in the last days, of which no other movement is preaching, if that's true, then we need to think carefully as an Adventist church about our mission and our message. Because surely there would be many ways that the devil would love to distract or derail or spoil our mission, to bring in confusion. He would love to have us, and maybe there's been some degree of success at inserting uh, confusion, disorienting us about our mission, and making us insecure about our message. But sometimes the threats from within are greater than the threats from without, as uh, the prophets have repeated many times, because sometimes we do a better job than anybody else at discrediting our own message. And today, in today's hyper-political environment, when the topic of religious liberty is sometimes uh, weaponized for certain moments or agendas, Adventists face a crisis of credibility. And Jesus talked about this, and we're going to unpack this this morning, when Jesus talked about this, this tension or this, this contest of credibility that would be on the global stage and the religious stage in the last days. When in Matthew 24, a verse we're most likely familiar with, Jesus says, then there will be many false, or then many false prophets will arise up and deceive many. It's a chapter on the last days. He's talking about the, the believers right before Jesus comes back. And in that time, will there be few false prophets or many false prophets? There will be many false prophets. Just like the days of Jeremiah, all these, all these different voices claiming to have a prophetic message and becoming a contest of credibility. Which prophet in the days of Jeremiah? How would you know which prophet was true? How would you choose during the Jer days of Jeremiah which prophet you would believe? I put on the screen some of the false prophets named in the book of Jeremiah. It was a loud time. 
They were, there was anger, there was distress. They were angry about Babylon and the, the abuses. Uh, they were losing their civil and their religious liberties because of Babylon. And uh, there was strong reactions against what was happening. Here's Jeremiah, and he's surrounded with these voices. And who is going to win the confidence of the rulers? Who's going to win the confidence of the people? You see, what we're talking about here is something that, that Jesus saw as foundational to everything. Jesus couldn't do anything unless he could win confidence. Christ's method alone gives true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. And then he bade them, follow me. How could he do that if he doesn't win confidence? And so Jeremiah, as it's true with every prophet of old, is competing with false prophetic messages and, and, and other voices saying different things. They're all saying things in the time of Jeremiah about the king of Babylon. And they're saying contradictory things about this a threat to the national sovereignty of, of Israel. And so if it's Pasher in Jerusalem, or if it's the prophets of Baal in Samaria, or if it's Hananiah in Jerusalem, or if it's Ahab in Babylon, or if it's Zedekiah in Babylon, or Shemaiah in Babylon, there's all of these voices. So what prophetic credentials are you looking for in a time when there's many false prophets? Because this generation of Jeremiah is circling back around in the last days when there will be many false prophets again. And I don't have that verse on the screen. You need to consider Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. Surely this verse will give us the key at uh, discerning uh, and testing these competing prophetic voices. Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as the one whom the Lord has truly sent. So how do you know? What are the credentials for a true prophet? Does that prophet have those credentials if that prophet is prophesying of peace but there's no peace? No. But it's a real temptation when you hear a false prophet and you, you, you see that the false prophet has made a, a wrong prediction, uh, but you keep listening to the false prophet because the false prophet may have other things that might, might be right. And of course, false prophets mix truth and error. And uh, th this became a very direct contest between Hananiah and Jeremiah. Down in verse 15 of, of Jeremiah 28, then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, here now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. By the way, the, the seventh month is a month of judgment. The day of atonement is in the seventh month. <clears throat> and so... 
during this time, there's uh, a struggle over these prophets. This is why, as Adventists, we have to be very careful about what we say and about what we predict when we're visiting with our neighbors and when we're visiting with our coworkers. And we say, oh, this is going to happen. I heard this and that. And, and this is going to happen in the government or this is going to happen. And then the things that we say are going to happen don't happen. And then we're also the ones saying that Jesus is going to come back soon. But if you've already made false assumptions, predictions, you've already made yourself a false prophet to your neighbor, to your coworker. You see, God has given us a, a very sacred and specific message. And God has sent prophets to the nations throughout the ages. And God intends for there to be a prophetic voice that will speak to the United States, the last superpower, as there is prophetic voices to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the others, Egypt, all of them had prophetic voices that confronted them. God intends for there to be a prophetic voice in the situation in the United States as well. But when, when the, we understand there's going to be so many false prophets, how much would the devil love to to hijack the Adventist message to make us one of the false prophets. Is this true or not? When I was in college in 2008, I remember one well-known Adventist speaker that was traveling and sharing with college students at the time that we needed to drop out of college because uh, the economy would be crashing, and there would be no, no way for us to graduate from college anyway because the end was here. And so we needed to drop out of college uh, and, and go straight into the mission field. And some did that. But you know, as it came and went, that perhaps there was some truth mixed with air. There wasn't an economic crash in 2008. Maybe the person had a few facts. Can we time when God is coming back? No. Do we know when the angels are going to let go of, of the winds? No. It could have been back in 2001. It could have been in 2008. It could have been in, in the 1880s. It could have been in World War I. It could have been in World War II. You cannot time when the final chapter is going to be by looking at the events. We can see the thermometer getting closer. We can see the tank draining. We can, we can know we better not bank on second chances. We better be ready today. But I didn't listen to that preacher anymore. Why? Because when I listened to him in college, he'd made false predictions. Many of, the, many of my friends that listened to him lost their faith. Maybe not because of that, but maybe because of that and others. And, and, and we lose credibility because we insert things into the message that are beyond what God has told us to say. Is anybody hearing me today? And um, in Deuteronomy, we get a, a, a picture of the danger and of the techniques of these false prophets. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, 
In verse 20 to 22, we have a message here about false prophets. It's as if sometimes as Adventists, our message that God has given to us, that God has revealed to us through Daniel and Revelation, through inspired commentary, things that we read about, we've looked at this week in Great Controversy, it's as if that message that God has given us is not sensational enough for us. We have to add something to it to get the attention, to create the conviction. And this type of thing is, is, is addressed in Deuteronomy 18 when these prophets have a true message, but they're adding words to it. Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22 says, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. When I read this verse, I wonder about the danger, the temptation for Adventists to speak presumptuously that we would make ourselves a, a false prophet. I wonder if there's too much presumption still in our heart to accomplish the final mission that God has given us and to sound the final warning, give the final message. I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus hasn't come back yet is there are still too many presumptuous words in our preaching and in our prophesying. I wonder if we are listening to the false prophets around us and mixing it in, allowing the metal to be mixed with a little alloy. I wonder if when John saw in the vision of the 1844,000 in Revelation 14, they have no guile in their mouth, it says. Revelation 14, what is it? Verse 5? No guile in their mouth. Does that mean that they are no longer making presumptuous predictions, false prophecies, and claims? Do you see how as Adventists we cannot afford, if we take our message as a sacred message and our mission seriously, we cannot afford to compromise mission and message by mixing in speculative and presumptuous words of false prophets with our own message. And if we do this, we will make predictions and lose the confidence of the people. Oh, I guess I have, I guess I have that, that scripture on the screen there. There it is, a description of the 144,000. In their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. You cannot have a mouth without guile, you cannot have a mouth without deceit and before fault without the throne of God if you are parroting the tone and the words of false prophets in America. And this is why perhaps the book of Revelation ends with this uh, very strong warning from Revelation 22 and verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. 
Are we talking about something serious right now? So when we have been given this message, this book, God says, don't you dare. If you're the voice for this prophetic message to these final kingdoms and nations, don't you dare add to what the message has been given or delivered. Otherwise, I will add the plagues to him, those plagues that are written in the book. And so it warns of this, this temptation. That's why I invite us this morning in appealing to you that we would check ourselves in the message that we give and the things that we predict and the things that we say about the United States and other nations, the prophetic message that we sound. Because there's going to be a people on the earth who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. And there will be a a true prophetic message to the nations. It's going to be a prophetic message to the nations and about the nations. It's going to be to the kings. As Jesus told us, Matthew 24, we'll be testifying to the kings. But Revelation says about, I have it on the screen, Revelation 10 verse 11. He said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This mandate, this mission is no less sacred than that which the prophets had when they prophesied to Egypt or when they prophesied to Babylon as Daniel did or when they prophesied to Medo-Persia, Greece, or Rome. This end-time message for the end-time nations is just as sacred and just as particular as any of the previous uh, messages to any of the nations. But it's interesting that this verse says, he said to me, you must prophesy again. That's because this movement that is entrusted with this prophetic message to the nations has already uh, uh, given given prophecies about the peoples and the nations and the tongues. And when they gave those prophecies the first time, it was a very bittersweet experience, wasn't it? And verse 10 says, so I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take, eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And so this, this movement, this voice that has a message about the nations and to the nations is a voice, that is, a, is a prophecy that's based on this book, which was closed and is open. We that have studied this, understand this to be the book of, of Daniel and the book of which our, our time prophecies come out of and that, that we preached out of when we began to study these prophecies 170, 180 years ago. And it was a very bitter, sweet experience. Or maybe I should say a very sweet, bitter experience. Because the, the sweetness of the experience it is, is hard for us to imagine. Uh, but in the words of, of those that lived back then, when the Adventist movement, early Adventists, came together, they came together as people that were still Methodist, still had their membership, still Baptist, Christian connection, all these different churches, uh, people coming out of them, but pretty soon they were being disfellowshipped from their churches. And Adventist preachers predicted that Jesus was coming back in 1843. 
and then 1844, eventually settling on the date October 22, 1844. It was hard to deny the divine touch upon this movement. Thousands of skeptics were converted to faith in Jesus. Many believers had never before experienced such deep repentance and revival. The work of the Holy Spirit was clear and evident. But they were wrong about Jesus coming back on that date. There was a false prediction that was at the center of it. William Miller was the first and foremost of all the Advent preachers. He was a Baptist. William Miller never became a Seventh-day Adventist. He never embraced the Sabbath truth. George Storrs, which I'm about to read from, also never became a Seventh-day Adventist, embraced the Sabbath truth. Joshua V. Himes, which I'll read from in a minute, also never became a Seventh-day Adventist, never embraced the Sabbath truth, although he was helped by an Adventist sanitarium in the 1890s. He sent money to Ellen White in the 1890s when she was in Australia to help with her work she was doing there. And she wrote one of the most beautiful letters to Joshua V. Himes, uh, honoring him and appreciating what he had done 50 years before. And, uh, but you can sense as these people come together from all these churches and their hopes and their dreams are focused on this date, October 22, 1844, and it spread like fire. They put everything on the line. All the stories about uh, selling the farms, putting the money into the work, not harvesting the potatoes because there's not going to be a harvest anyways. And every Wednesday, they publish this eight-page paper, this Advent Herald and Signs of the Times reporter with Joshua V. Himes as the editor. And George Storrs writes on October 9, 1844, in this uh, edition of the paper, which was just 13 days, almost two weeks before, slightly under two weeks before October 22. And he wrote in this paper, and you can, you can find all of these things just like I can. By the way, the Adventist Digital Library has a booth right here. You can go visit them, and they do great work, and all of these archives and things that they have put on the internet is just as accessible to you as it is to me, AdventistDigitalLibrary.org, where I got this picture of, of this uh, paper published October 9, 1844. And George Storrs wrote, I take up my pen with feelings such as I never before experienced. Beyond a doubt in my mind, the tenth day of the seventh month will witness the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven. We are then within a few days of that event. Awful moment to those who are unprepared, but glorious to those who are ready. I feel that I am making the last appeal that I shall ever make through the press. My heart is full. And you can feel the, the emotion in, in their writing and in, in, in their actions as we read about it. And Joshua V. Himes, the editor of the magazine, wrote in the Paper of October 16, 1844, just a, a week before, six days before. He was the second most important man in the movement, Joshua V. Himes. He was the PR person, public relations person for 
the Advent Movement, thanks to Joshua V. Himes. Before October 22, 1844, Adventists had published 8 million tracts. That's at a time when the population of the United States was around 16 to 18 million people. That's a tract for every two people in the country, but it wasn't just limited to the United States. They mailed their Advent tracts to every mission station around the world of nearly every church. They were extremely aggressive with this proclamation and this message. And he wrote, as the date of the present number of the Herald is our last day of publication before the 10th day of the seventh month, we shall make no provision for issuing a paper for the week following. And as we are shut up to this faith, by the sounding of this cry at midnight during the tearing of the vision, when we had all slumbered and slept, and at the very point when all the periods according to our chronology and date of their commencement terminate, we feel called upon to suspend our labors and await the result. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him, is the cry that is being sounded in our ears. And may we all, with our lamps trimmed and burning, be prepared for his glorious appearing. Can you feel the, the, the moment as everything is converging? But why did this happen? Why was there a great disappointment? God used this disappointment to his glory. It was to test his people, to humble them, and to disentangle them from false doctrine. The whole thing happened because they were still going along with things that the popular churches were saying, even though they were not in the Bible. The popular churches were teaching that the New Covenant Temple was no different than the Old Covenant Temple. They were looking to Jerusalem as the location of the sanctuary. In a broader sense, the whole earth. That's what was being taught everywhere. And God used this, dis this disappointment to begin pulling out false doctrines. After 1844, there were many other false doctrines that had to be disentangled. The Sabbath came, the state of the dead, and many others. But it had to begin with a great disappointment to let them know you have to let go of every human-made theory and doctrine. It has to be completely cleansed from your system if you're going to be a movement of destiny that is going to be a prophetic voice in the last days. He, he, he allowed our movement, or the, I can say our movement, I don't try to distance myself from, from the Advent movement, though they weren't Seventh-day Adventists in our church form, this is the beginning of the movement. And many of them, uh, well, there was about 50,000 before the Great Disappointment, got down to maybe 50, and it splintered into different groups. Um, but those that that studied their Bible and realized that they had made a doctrinal mistake and went back to the Bible, found answers. Ironically, today, most churches are still teaching the same false doctrine that the New Covenant Temple is the temple in Jerusalem. And dispensational doctrine is built on that same theory that caused our problem back on October 22, 1844. God has called our movement out of Babylon. He's called us back to a true, loyal, clear teaching of the scriptures. So I want to read to you how 
this mistake was happening. I'm going to read to you from two authors, Ellen White and O.R.L. Crozier. Ellen White wrote about this event in Great Controversy, page 358, saying, As the disciples were mistaken in regard to the kingdom to be set up at the end of the 70 weeks, so Adventists were mistaken in regard to the event to take place at the expiration of the 2300 days. God used the disappointment of the 12 disciples to cleanse them from their false theories, which they had imbibed from the Pharisees around, and to have a reset doctrinally. And he used a great disappointment in 1844 to hit another reset button. And she continues in this paragraph saying, in both cases, there was an acceptance of, or rather an adherence to, popular heirs that blinded the mind to the truth. Both classes fulfilled the will of God in delivering the message which he desired to be given. And both, through their own misapprehension of their message, suffered disappointment. And so they had accepted popular heirs. Now I'm concerned about Adventists doing this today. I'm concerned about us today still embracing popular heirs and for that to dilute our message or disqualify us from giving the message about and to the nations. On page 409, she says, in common with the rest of the Christian world, Adventists then held that the earth or some portion of it was the sanctuary because our, our, the, the time prophecy point, pointing to October 22, 1844 was based off of Daniel 8, 14 and 2,300 days, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And when they interpreted that sanctuary as the earth, they said that must be talking about the second coming of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. They understood that the cleansing of the sanctuary was the purification of the earth by the fires of the last great day, and that this would take place at the second advent. Hence the conclusion that Christ would return to the earth in 1844. In their investigation, they learned that there is no scripture evidence sustaining the popular view. That's the second time I've used the word popular. We have to be very careful with popular teachings, prophecies about America and what's happening in the world that the earth is the sanctuary, but they found in the Bible a full explanation of the subject of the sanctuary. It's nature, locations, and services. The testimony of the sacred writers became so, being so clear and ample as to the place, the matter, beyond all question. Because the Bible, I don't know how they missed it. I mean, when you read Hebrews, Hebrews 8, and all the rest of Hebrews, it's abundantly clear, repeated innumerable times that the new covenant high priest is in heaven, the new covenant sanctuary is in heaven. You go to Revelation eleven nineteen. John sees the temple opened in heaven, and he sees there the Ark of the Covenant. The New Testament is abundantly clear. They missed it. Because all the voices around were saying the sanctuary is in Jerusalem, and it's the earth. And so this disappointment had to disengage us from popular views and rhetoric so that we would actually anchor down and stick with the Bible message. O.R.L. Crozier, who also never became a Seventh-day Adventist, also never accepted the Sabbath, but he, he helped study the sanctuary message and published the first well, uh, good articulation of the definition of the New Covenant Sanctuary. 
in Daystar Extra, February 7, 1846, and he wrote this, but as we have been so long industriously thought, taught to look to the earth for the sanctuary, we may be proper to inquire by what scriptural authority have we been thus taught? Why had they been teaching that? Because they had been hearing that. You can't just teach the things that you hear. Let it be remembered that the definition of the sanctuary is a holy or sacred place. Is the earth, is Palestine such a place? Their entire contents answer no. Was Daniel so taught? Look at his vision. And so the great disappointment was a moment to shake us up and to, to disentangle us from repeating human ideas and doctrines which are not firmly grounded and taught in Scripture. Well, shortly after that, as I read to you yesterday, Jay and Andrews, who started teaching from Revelation 13 about America and prophecy. The Seventh-day Adventist Church for 170 years has been saying the exact same thing about the United States, and we've never changed. Our message over 170 years, going back to the article I read to you yesterday from the article in 1851, since then, we've never changed our message on the United States. And I summarize it in four points. The Adventist uh, teaching about the United States in the second beast of Revelation 13, for 170 years, this is what we've said. We've said that America will not be overthrown or replaced by any earthly power. It's the last of the lineup of prophetic powers. That's extremely significant. We believe it's the United States the last, and we've been teaching that all along. We believe that America, a land of boasted liberty, will give up its liberties and eventually deny the principles, repudiate the principles of its constitution. But we've been saying that for 170 years. We've been teaching for 170 years since the 1850s, based on Revelation 13, that Protestant America will make an alliance with Catholicism in enforcing Sunday legislation. And there will be laws enforcing a false day of worship, a counterfeit day of worship. We've been saying that for 170 years. And number four, through spiritualism, America will deceive the world with great wonders and miracles. These are our anchor points that have never changed. And they are not about to change now when we're getting down to the wire. Now, when Adventists get into the news, you've got to be careful what's said about us, just as you have to be careful what the news says about anybody. I want to share with you one of our little moments of infamy in the last few years. And as I show you these, these uh, articles from the news with Adventists in them, you can ask yourself about how, Advent, how careful should Adventists be with the false narrative that is being spun about what our message is and what our message isn't. Here we go. Are you ready? First one is from CNN. How QAnon uses religion to lure unsuspecting Christians. This was uh, published on October 15, 2020. Do you remember what was happening in October 2020? 
there was a presidential election. And between October 2020 and the next three or four months, there are many different media outlets mentioning Adventists trying to connect us with QAnon. And I'll read you several of them and, and kind of unpack what this is all about. <clears throat> the CNN article says, under somewhat similar, after describing what's happening in the world of QAnon, QAnon is a, 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 a secret uh, network or organization that, that, that anonymously distributed messages online, making uh, secret revelations of, of uh, military or other government entities and what's going to happen next in America. QAnon was making many predictions about uh, the election, making many claims about the election, uh, predictions about what was going to happen next with Trump coming back in, and a lot of these things. And so after this article describes some of that, then this article says, under somewhat similar strains, a group of 1840s Baptists called the Millerites predicted the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus didn't arrive, the Millerites were greatly disappointed. But they adjusted their apocalyptic timetables and soldiered on, eventually becoming the Seventh-day Adventist Church. All right, so a nice little effort to connect us with uh, this uh, political thing called QAnon, which was a big deal two years ago, two or three years ago in the news. Pace Magazine uh, did an article, QAnon took a major hit with Biden's elections, but it, it's never going away. And this article starts out, I'll start out with the first paragraph of this article. It's a funny way to start out an article about Biden's election and about QAnon, but it starts like this. On the morning of October 22, 1844, some many thousands of devout individuals throughout the U.S. and beyond waited with collective bated breath for the second coming of Jesus Christ. They believed with all their hearts that the day had come when Christ would return to usher in the end of the world, smiting the wicked while shuffling them off to heaven and to live in eternal bliss. It was, after all, what they'd been promised by their spiritual leaders as part of the surging Millerism movement, spearheaded by Baptist preacher turned prophet William Miller, who did nothing to stand in the way of those members who gave away all their earthly worldly possessions in anticipation of Christ's imminent return. Suffice to say, October 23, 1844 was a significantly less cheerful day for the Millerites. The resulting letdown of Millerite members and churches throughout the country is known as the Great Disappointment, one of the watershed psycho-spiritual events of the 19th century. It was the grand bursting of a massive bubble of belief that involved both misinformation and runaway blind faith. Confronted with that most devastating of opponents, a, a concrete date for when a prediction is meant to come true, but the great disappointment wasn't the end of the Millerites. In fact, their fractured faith has soldiered on for almost 180 years, and the modern Adventist denominations of Protestant Christianity, such as the Seventh-day Adventists, are direct descendants of the exact same group that waited for Christ's return in 1844. Today, they're still waiting and still believing Though the exact tenets of that belief have obviously changed and adapted over the many decades, and that, in a nutshell, is also what's going on in the land of QAnon in the wake of the 2020 presidential election. You like to hear those kinds of things? 
So there will be many, many more attempts to connect dots and to spin a narrative and a counter narrative, make false accusations and all those kinds of things. The Vox published The Future of QAnon, explained by eight experts. Jane Coston, host of the argument, New York Times, said many observers of the movement have compared QAnon's failings, the myriad predictions that did not come to pass, including the, various, the very predictions of ultimate Trumpian victory that served as the foundation of conspiracy theory, to the great 1844 Great Disappointment. During a time of significant religious upheaval in the United States, Baptist minister William Miller predicted that the world would come to an end on March 21, 1844. When Jesus did not return to earth on that date, Miller revised his prediction, saying that the second coming would instead take place on April 18, 1844. When Christ did not make his return on that date, Miller apologized for the error, but another Millerite preacher, Samuel Snow, declared that Christ would return on the 10th day of the seventh month of the present year. And using the calendar of a Jewish sect he believed to be more accurate than our own, said that the date would be October 22, 1844. Clearly, the world did not end on October 22, 1844, but neither surprisingly did the Millerites. Instead, they broke into factions, the most famous of which, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, came to believe that October 22 did not mark the second coming, but rather an event that took place in heaven. Now, this is why... Uh, the, the Jan, infamous day of January 6th, when there's a riot in the Capitol, was a very uh, spiritual event. And I know you can find a lot of pictures of it, but if you listen to certain audio recordings of things that were happening that day, it'll sound like a church service to you. Because there's praise songs happening, and there's prayers happening, there's a lot of speaking in tongues, and there's prophesying, and many people that were there, and many people more on, that were not present, but maybe connected with the New Apostolic Reformation movement and other coalition of prophets that had gotten behind Trump had seen many visions and dreams that he would be in for a second term. And nothing would stand in their, in their religious conviction that Trump uh, was given by God a second term. And so the name of Jesus gets dragged into January 6th in the name of, of Christianity, and there's flags, and there's prayers, and all those kinds of things. And so we, we, we're living in a, in a very mixed-up world where people are narrating this thing and re-narrating it in different ways. And uh, trust me, when it's all done, it's not going to be a, a narrative that favors God's people who stand up for the commandments of God. Now, this thing about conspiracies, you can see that many uh, doctrines that the Adventist church teaches is considered by the world to be conspiracy theory. And when, we will never be able to divorce ourselves from that or disconnect from that. Uh, this article by Paul Braderman is Professor Emeritus in Chemistry, University of North Texas, Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Glasgow. Writes this article, Why Creationism Bears All the Hallmarks of a Conspiracy Theory. In the U.S. today, up to 40% 40, 40 of adults agree with the young earth creationist claim 
that all humans are descended from Adam and Eve within the past 10,000 years. They also believe that living creatures are the result of special creation rather than evolution and shared ancestry, and that Noah's flood was worldwide and responsible for the sediments in the geologic column, layers of rock built up over millions of years, such as those exposed in the Grand Canyon. Such beliefs, young earth creationism, derived from the doctrine of biblical infallibility, long accepted as an integral to the faith of numerous evangelical and Baptist churches throughout the world, including the Free Church of Scotland. But I would argue that the present-day creationist movement is a fully-fledged conspiracy theory. It meets all the criteria, offering a complete parallel universe with its own organizations and rules of evidence and claims that the scientific establishment promoting evolution is an arrogant and morally corrupt elite. I fear that the creationist conspiracy theory will not be so short-lived, and it won't be because uh, Revelation prophesies of people who will honor God as their creator. Amen? It is driven by a deep-seated... Now back to this uh, article. It is driven by a deep-seated power struggle within religious communities between modernists and literalists. Do we read the Bible literally? Yes, we do. <clears throat> Unless it's uh, indicated that we're reading from a portion that is symbolic. Between those who regard Scripture as coming to us, the human authors, however inspired, and those who regard it as a perfect supernatural revelation, and that it is a struggle, this is a struggle that will be with us for a long time to come. Now, even the Pope has come down on this one. And the Pope has spoken of creation, saying we need to, to not interpret Revelation uh, literally, I mean, uh, Genesis literally. And by the way, that's the foundation of taking the second coming not literally. Once you take the, the creation not literally, then you don't have to take the second coming literally. Some of the Adventists believe both are literal. He, the Pope said God is not a, a magician with a magic wand. Addressing the Pontifical Academy of Sciences on Monday, the pontiff observed that when we read about creation in Genesis, we, we run the risk of imagining God as a magician with a magic wand able to do everything. But that is not so. It's amazing. Amazing. <clears throat> now, here's the deal, folks. The last few minutes that we have. <clears throat> if a conspiracy is the idea that the curtains can be pulled back and you can discern the events behind events happening, then certainly Revelation, the book of Revelation, is the true conspiracy, isn't it? And if God has given a message to certain people in this world to be the true prophetic message, to reveal the things that God has pulled the curtain back on Revelation, then how careful... And if all these false accusations, which I've just read to you, and I'm not going to try to take time to defend ourselves or anything like that, if, if, if all of that's being spun already, do you think it's going to increase? Certainly, you, you know it's going to increase. And if we are standing in defense of the true conspiracy in this world, then how careful should Adventists be to not entangle ourselves with speculative conspiracies? Am I right or wrong? You see, if you're the neighbor that believes the world is flat and you're also the neighbor that believes the Bible, you just discredited the Bible. I, this week, 
I asked the juniors if they've ever looked up at the moon at night and seen a square moon. None of them have seen a square moon. It didn't take long when I asked them about the shape of the moon. But we, while I was with the J2 this week, we, we got on um, Zoom, and uh, we got to visit with some missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And uh, some of you know the Slagger family, and there's uh, Jason, who's current, Jason Slagger, who's uh, in Papua New Guinea, with uh, Christian and uh, Evangeline and, and Verity. And uh, they woke up. Please send them an extra donation, because just for me, they woke up at 4.30 in the morning to show J2 that it's dark in Papua New Guinea while it's the middle of the afternoon in Michigan. And so when we live in the modern age, when everybody knows that, and they know it's completely dark on the other side of the world, same time, it's the middle of the afternoon here, and we start picking up and reverberating these ideas, these speculative conspiracies, and somehow then we're mixing them in with our prophetic message. What are we doing to our prophetic message? We're discrediting it. We're diluting it. And this is why, when speaking of this very voice in Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 10 verse 4 says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. You see, there are even things that are true. But if they're sealed up and God hasn't opened them for us, are they our message or not? God opened up the seals, preach them. God, the seven seals. God opened up the seven thunders, preach them. God gave later... The, the, the seven plagues, preach them. But the seven thunders, don't preach them. They're sealed. You see, we are to preach the things that God has opened up and revealed and made a part of our message. We cannot be the messenger for truth and the messenger for speculative theories at the same time. It doesn't work. We're in big trouble when we're mixing these two together. <clears throat> so Ellen White warns about some of these things when in Testimonies for the Church volume 8 page 242 in this chapter she's speaking of leaders of the church but in Testimonies volume 6 and other broader context of the testimonies there's a lot to say about leaders of government as well, and uh, writes, it is not the opposition of the world that endangers us the most. It is the evil cherished in the hearts of professed believers that works our most grievous disaster and most retards the progress of God's cause. I'm afraid sometimes that our biggest danger is not from without, but from within. And the devil is playing a game, and he's playing Adventists. So the Adventists would also become false prophets by parroting what everybody else is saying about America and speculating what everybody else is saying about the governments and forms of this world. The great thing about conspiracy theories is at least half of them are true. But if you don't know which half are true, and if you're the one that is proclaiming this message, which is absolutely solid, 
which is absolutely defensible. I can sit down with the message that God has given us with an atheist, with another Christian, with a Muslim, with a person from any background, and I can sit down with the message and I can explain the reasons I believe the Bible. I can defend the reasons I believe where the world is going. I can open up and I can explain it and I don't have to be ashamed of it and I don't have to guess. I can believe it with confidence. I can defend it. Leave the rest alone. It is not the opposition of the world that endangers us the most. It is the evil cherished in the hearts of professed believers that works our most grievous disaster and most retards the progress of God's cause. There is no surer way of weakening our spirituality than by being envious, suspicious of one another, full of fault-finding and evil surmising. You see here? The, the Holy Spirit cannot be poured out upon us as long as we are filled with suppositions, fault-finding, evil surmising, being suspicious of one another, and you listen to our tone and the way that we speak of one another, God's Holy Spirit cannot be poured out as long as this is in the mix. I don't know what God, God did a disappointment already, a great disappointment. I don't know what, what exactly he'll take us through to take some of this out of us. God has a way of, of testing our hearts and testing our spirits. And, when he, and I don't know how he'll do that. But when God tests our hearts and our spirits, I just pray to God that I'm true to him. How about you? I, I want to be true to the prophecies Jesus gave, the parables. I want to be true to the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to be true to the spiritual heritage that we have received. And in the area of religious liberty, not going to be making a much impact in the area of religious liberty unless we have influence. And we're not going to have much influence unless we have credibility. And we're not going to have much credibility if we're saying crazy things or even supposing certain things that are suppositions and uh, that are unverifiable. And so um, this, uh, me these messages I've been sharing, they're all online. If you want to review or you'd like to look at some of the quotes I've used in the last five days, I've had quite a bit of history, verses, spirit of prophecy, the rest, newspapers, it's all been in here, I guess. Uh, you can go to that uh, Michigan Conference YouTube channel right there on the screen, and uh, you can share a message or two or all of them with uh, friends, and uh, we can continue to study together, love one another, and grow together. How many of you are committed to that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this sobering history, our own history of a great disappointment because of a great mistake. And Lord, somehow, if you could cleanse our hearts from different messages, speculative theories and ideas, if we could be true to you, so that when Revelation says that there will be a prophetic voice that speaks the truth and nothing but the truth, speaks to the nations and about the nations, may we be prepared if you can find nobody else. And please cleanse our hearts, forgive our sins. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. To listen to more of these presentations, 
You may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.